Well, I saw the ball in the air, and it was a perfectly thrown pass. And I had the coverage beat, and I ran with all my might, and I caught it, and I ran the pass in for a touchdown. And the crowd went crazy. They started clapping and applauding. Of course, that's what happens when the crowd consists of the mom and sister of the quarterback and nothing more as we were playing football in his backyard in the neighborhood. And I spiked the ball, having just scored the backyard touchdown, and look over. And two brothers were playing, but they were on opposite teams. And one brother told the other one, you fouled me. And he said, fouls are for basketball. No blood, no foul. And he said, wait, you say that in basketball? That doesn't make sense. He's like, you face-masked me or something. And before we knew it, they started fighting each other. And their fight kept going. And so somebody from one of the teams ran in to help the teammate and pull him off the pile. And somehow he got thrown into the fight as well. And so he started fighting the other brother on the opposite team. And the brothers stopped fighting and together team up and start fighting the guy who joined in the fight to try to break up the brothers from fighting, but then went with one of the brothers from one of the teams. The brother said, you can't fight us. We're brothers. We fight. I never grew up with a brother. I had an older sister. It's part of the reason I am the person that I am today. She was two and a half years older than me. All growing up, she could beat the snot out of me, and that was just funny, and my parents would tell her one day, you're going to have to watch out because he's going to be able to stomp you. I got to stomp her one time, and I was in big trouble and told, you never do that again. I'm like, what? For eight years, all we've been told, no, don't ever touch your sister again. You don't hit a woman. I'm like, come on. Where so I never understood the brother dynamic. I never understood what it's like to, to love someone and hate someone all at the same time and to be able to just throw violent fists at each other and five minutes later be best friends again in the world. Never understood that dynamic. Can you imagine how Adam and Eve felt? This morning we're continuing our look at the beginning and Today we're covering one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. And again, even if you have a very limited knowledge of the Bible, you know the story of Cain and Abel. You know the story of two brothers. And today we're going to look at the implications of, of Cain and Abel and the choices and the decisions that they made in their lives and how, how those implications impact all of us. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to download the Bible app. And once you've done that, utilize the events feature within the Bible app. And there, Lakeside Community Church will pop up if your locations are enabled. And if not, you can type in zip code 54201 and you can follow along with us there. If you have a, a paper Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4. Genesis is the very first book in the Bible the fourth chapter, if you're streaming from home, thanks for joining us. The verses will be available on the screen below as we look today at the story of Cain and Abel and Genesis 4, starting in verse 1, where we read these words. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abel. So just to catch you up, in case, in case you haven't been joining us, welcome a few weeks ago, we saw that God created everything. God creates the first people. God creates Adam. He creates Eve. He makes a special garden for them. They rebel against God. They take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat of the tree. God removes them from the garden. 
and now they are having to get on with the rest of their lives in the world. And one of the things God has told Adam and Eve is be fruitful and multiply. And here Adam and Eve are doing just that. Eve gives birth to a son, Cain, and she gives birth to another son named Abel. Verse 2 ends this way. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So we see right here that there are these two brothers that Adam and Eve have. One of them, Abel, he's a shepherd. He takes care of sheep. Cain is a farmer. He works the ground. This is, this is the distinction between the two. They're brothers. They have different professions, probably different interests. One goes one way. He's a shepherd. One goes another way. He's a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So we see another distinction here. First, we've seen the distinction in career paths for Abel and Cain. And now we see another distinction, that Cain and Abel both bring offerings to God, and yet God takes joy in Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's offering. Now, there's been a lot of conjecture about Cain's offering, a lot of conjecture about Cain's offering. Some people say, well, God would have required it to be an animal, an animal sacrifice. Some say it should have been the first of the crops. We, we don't exactly know, we don't exactly know what is going on here outside of what scripture actually tells us. We can infer and we can speculate, but at the end of the day, all we really know for sure is what Scripture tells us, that these two brothers who live their lives a little differently both bring an offering to God. They both bring an offering to God, and one of the offerings is accepted by God. God has regard for Abel's offering, and one of the offerings that Cain brings is rejected by God. Now, what do we know explicitly from the text, that, that can help us draw conclusions, that can help us infer. Well, the first thing we know is that Cain's offering was fruit of the ground. Fruit of the ground. Meaning, what Cain, what Cain bundled up and brought before God, they were leftovers. They were leftovers. Cain came, he took some of the fruit off the ground, bundled it up, and he presented it before God. It'd be like going out, taking a bag, bundling up a bunch of deer apples and bringing them. They're like, God, here you go. Here's some deer apples. That's what I'm giving you. And you contrast that with what Scripture tells us of Abel's offering. And, and let's read it again. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel. Abel brought God his first and not only his first, but his best. Abel brought God not the leftovers from the ground, but Abel brought God the best that his flock had produced and the best that his flock had to provide. Abel brings that, and he sacrifices it to God. And God is pleased with Abel's offering, but he rejects Cain's. And Cain's response is one of anger. Now, we have one of two ways that we can look at this. We can look at Cain's anger and we can say, why are you mad? Like you went out with a little bag and you, you 
took some fruit that had fallen off the trees that you didn't want to eat. You put it in a bag and you presented it to God. I'm like, here you go, God. You gave God your leftovers. Why are you mad? That's one way we can look at this. Another way we can look at this is, well, Cain brought something. Yeah, it was like the equivalent of deer apples, but it was still something. He brought that to God, and it's not good enough for God. I mean, he went through the, he could have done nothing. He actually did something. So I kind of get where he's coming from here if he put in all that effort. I mean, those are the two ways that we can look at this. And I think the way that we look at this says a lot about us. It says a lot about our hearts. It says a lot about what we feel and what we think and what the center of our universe is. Whether that's God or ourselves. Based on how we interpret this. Irregardless of how we feel, Cain's angry. And it's obvious. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God says to Cain, quit with the victim mentality. Quit playing the victim. Oh, man, our, our society loves the victim mentality. Loves the victim mentality. There is no better way to garner likes and reactions on social media than to play up that you're the victim. I mean, we have, an, we have an entire generation that is just obsessed with being victimized and obsessed with being the victim. And that's nothing new. We see it here with Cain. And God says to Cain, stop. Stop. You only have yourself to blame. Quit playing the victim and do what you should. That's what I want from you. That's what I require of you. My desire for you, Cain, is that you would do what you should. And here's the warning. Sin? Sin is crouching at your door. Sin is sitting by, and it wants to destroy you. Its desire is to oppose you. It is contrary to you, and it is crouching at your door. It is just lying in wait. How are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? And that's the question for all of us. Because every single one of us who's made the decision to follow Jesus is engaged, as we talked about last week, is engaged in a spiritual battle. And sometimes we don't think about it because we don't see it, and oftentimes that battle happens in the unseen realm. And so it's not always at the forefront of our minds, and yet it is very real. For every person who's made the decision to follow Jesus, we now have an adversary. And the adversary wants nothing more than to take us out. And so one of the things we do is we think to ourselves, well, okay, if I'm the adversary, what I want to do is completely destroy my enemy. And you're absolutely right. The adversary wants to completely destroy you. But a much more subtle tactic that the adversary will use in your life 
is to distract you. It's easy frequently, it's easy to see the methods and the means that the enemy would use that would thoroughly destroy us. Seldom do those come by surprise. Now, that doesn't mean we still don't make stupid decisions and wind down that path, but seldom do the things that would actually destroy us happen by surprise. Most of us can see those coming. Most of us know enough to warn people about those things. Most of us are like, okay, I can, I can see where that one's coming from. The much more subtle tool that the enemy uses is to distract us to take our time and our energy and our focus away from God. And just as sin was crouching at the door of Cain, for every single one of us who's made the decision to follow Jesus, and every single one of us who hasn't made the decision to follow Jesus, for those of you who are still searching and seeking out, this is a universal theme for all of humanity, that sin is crouching at our and it looks different for you than it does for your neighbor. It looks different for you than it does your spouse. It looks different for you than it does your sibling. But the reality is this is universal. And the end result, the end goal that the enemy has is to take us out, to steal our joy, to make us feel hopeless. To live a life that is less than the life that God has called us to. God looks at Cain. He says, Cain, quit playing the victim card and recognize that you have a choice. That you have a choice. Sin is real. It's crouching at your door and it wants to destroy you, but you can resist it. The choice is yours. And that same message is a message to all of us. And the question is, what are we going to choose? What do we choose? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And they were in the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain kills Abel. I, I grew up in church, and we went Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and I didn't want to be there for any of the three. And there was a Wednesday night that I was drugged to church, and I didn't want to be there, and I fought with my sister the whole way in the car, and we got to church, and it was one of those situations where you could kind of tell the people who were in charge of the kids didn't want to be there that night either, but they signed up, and, you know, a little religious guilt never hurt anybody, so they were there, and they were like, all right, what are we going to do? And one of them had the idea, I know what we're going to do. We're going to ask the kids what their favorite Bible story is. I'd like to start, Brian, pastor's son. What's your favorite Bible story? Cain and Abel. They were concerned. I said, who was your favorite character? Cain. And then they were really concerned. They called my dad about that one. 
Cain just kills his brother. God has just warned him, sin is crouching at your door. Rule over it. Make the right choice. Good talk, God. Abel, why don't we go hunting? Let's go out in the field. And he murders him. Put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes. There's no manual for this. I mean, parenting's never easy. But you're the first parents in history. You are never leading a parenting workshop. Your son just murdered your other son. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? Cain replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? God, hey, Cain, where is he? I'm fascinated in the way that God shows up in these moments and asks questions he already knows the answer to. I'm equally fascinated by Cain's response. Not my responsibility, God. I don't know where he is. You're God, shouldn't you know? I'm not his keeper. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. See, not only is this the first murder in history, this is the first human death in history. And God shows up and he tells Cain, the rest of your life, the rest of your life, the ground is even further cursed from, for you even further cursed for you. And you will spend the rest of your days as a fugitive. You will wander from place to place. You will run and you will never know a home. You will never have peace. You will never have security. You will bounce around from place to place to place. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain's like, this is, God, this is too great of a punishment. I'm a dead man walking. Do you see it? He just killed his brother. And God says, I'm driving you away from here. You're going to live an existence of a fugitive. And his response is, God, that's too much. He just murdered someone. And this can be the problem of us all. 
is we lose sight of just how abhorrent some of our actions are. It's always easier to look out the window than in a mirror. It's always easy to see the faults and the flaws of others and incredibly difficult to inventory our own lives and to see what we need to fix and where we need to grow. And if we aren't careful, we spend our entire lives pointing at others and forgetting all the fingers that point back at ourselves. It's the reason that Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye before you worry about the splinter in your neighbor's. It's not unique to our times. It's not unique to our culture. It's not unique to you and I. It's a universal thing of humanity. Cain says, God, this punishment's too great. I'm a dead man walking. Never mind, I literally just killed my brother. And then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God, in his judgment, is still gracious. God, even in his judgment, is still gracious. And he marks Cain with a certain mark so that he won't be attacked. And what's fascinating about this is we know in the New Testament, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but we know from the New Testament that Cain is synonymous with evil. That Cain never made the decision to accept faith and trust in God. And yet... Here is someone who actively and for their entire life rejected God's goodness and God's grace. And he still experienced God's grace. That even in God's judgment, he is still gracious. And he marks Cain so that Cain won't be attacked. And why this matters is because some of you have experienced God's grace, and so you think, I'm all right. But you've confused God's goodness and God's still experiencing some of His grace with you making the decision to follow Jesus and have a saving relationship with God. And you think to yourself, well, certainly I'm okay, because you look at the way that God has blessed me. And God blesses Cain here. But it's not because Cain made the decision to actively follow God. It's just how good and gracious our God is. That even those who do not make the decision to follow after God still experience elements of His grace. The fullness of His grace is experienced in the work of Jesus. But there are elements of God's grace that are experienced universally. Cain experiences some of that. 
We don't have time to look at it now, but verses 17 through 22 go on and they describe Cain's lineage. And Cain would be the great-great-grandfather of Lamech. And then we're going to pick up the story there in Genesis 4.23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. I mean, what a good dude, right? What, just what an incredible guy. Got a couple wives. Listen, you wives of Lamech, I killed a man. He wounded me, so I went out and I killed him. And not just any man, but we're, we're made at a point to let it be known that it's a young man. It's somebody who isn't fully mature. It's somebody who's still learning. You ever make a stupid choice when you were a teenager, right? Pretty glad somebody that was older and wiser didn't just say, well, kill you. I mean, they might have wanted to, but they didn't. Now, Lamech, just awesome. And then he brags about it. Yeah. People talk about Cain. <laughs> Cain's nothing. If Cain's this bad, here's how bad I am. You think Cain did something? You think Cain was someone? Check me out. This is the lineage that Cain leaves. And yet there's a distinction as Genesis 4 comes to a close. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. We see the distinction here. That God's goodness is established in people who followed him. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with this? First, I, I want to talk to those of you who are parents. Uh, for those of you who are parents, whether you, you've got young kids, whether your kids are grown, wherever you are in that spectrum, whether you're expecting, where, wherever you are, I, I just want to remind you as parents, there are no guarantees when it comes to raising kids. No guarantees. There aren't any manuals. I mean, there are some manuals, but there aren't really any manuals. There isn't a perfect recipe. You're going to make some mistakes. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. And when you make mistakes as a parent, own them and confess them. Let your kids see the necessity of repentance and confession in your life 
model that to them. When you break a promise to them, own it. Confess it. Ask for their forgiveness. Model those behaviors to them. But realize, no matter how godly you are, no matter how much you pray for your kids, no matter how much work and effort and energy you put into it, there are no guarantees. I mean, think, just think of, of what it would be like to be Adam and Eve. They have experienced full intimacy with God himself. And they rebelled against that. And now they live in a world where they remember what it was ultimately like where everything was as God originally created and designed it to be. Imagine the perspective that they had to offer their boys. Imagine the lessons that they could teach Cain and Abel as they grew up. Here are people who actually walked with God and remember what that was like. now see the world as it is, who now see the world as a shell of what God originally designed it and created it to be, and as they raise their kids, they have to be looking back at all that they had and telling them constantly, there is a better way. We know from the end of Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve clung to that promise of God. And we know that at least one of their kids got it. Because the sacrifice that Abel brought to God, God saw and accepted with regard. So how do we reconcile this problem with Cain? Same parents, different outcomes. For those of you who are parents, I just want to remind you of what's true in your life is true in your kid's life. That sin is crouching at the door. And you can desire, and you can pray, and you can cling, and you can hope all you want. But at the end of the day, the very thing that got us kicked out of the garden is the very thing that will break your heart. And that God gave every single one of us free will. You can't make your child's choices for them. And maybe you just need to give yourself a little more grace. Maybe you blew it. Maybe you were a horrible parent. 
I've seen horrible parents produce some of the most godly, inspiring people I've ever met. And I've seen some of the most godly parents raise some of the biggest mess-ups I've ever encountered. You can't make your child's choices for them. You will stand before God one day as a parent and you will give an account for what you did with the time that you were given and how you managed your children. But ultimately, you cannot make their choices for them. And you can't force your kids to love Jesus like you do. And I know that's incredibly difficult to accept, but your kids are responsible for their own actions. Maybe one of the ways the enemy is distracting you isn't necessarily through sin, but he's coming and he's just whispering in your ear and in your heart, you messed up, you aren't good enough. Look at the job you did if this is how your kid ended up. He wants to steal your joy and he wants to destroy you. And if it doesn't destroy you, he'll accept just distracting the process. Your kids are responsible for your own action, for their own actions. But I also want to remind you that your kids are watching. Your kids are watching. And in the same way that Lamech was, well, you've heard about Cain. Well, listen to me. Here's what I've done. You think Cain was something? It was nothing compared to me. Just remember, more is caught than taught. The most effective tool for parenting is what you practice. The example you set in your conduct and how you live is more impactful than any lesson you speak. And they're constantly watching. And kids are a mirror that show us the best parts of ourselves and the worst. And just remember, they're always watching. Even after they've moved out, even after the relationship can be frayed, they're still watching. The question I have for us universally is this. Is God getting our best? Is God getting our best? No one can answer that question but you. Because there are some people who can go into performance mode that no one would ever have any idea. But your heart knows. And your spouse probably knows. They might not know, but they probably know. 
But in your heart, is God getting your best? And one of the things that we have problems wrapping our minds around sometimes is the fact that if God's getting our best, there are going to be some who oppose that. There are going to be some who are angry about that. There are going to be some who just refuse to accept it. And the reminder for us from this story, from the life of Abel, is it's better to live a life that's pleasing to God. Even if it doesn't turn out like we expect it to, there's still nothing greater. I want to encourage you and challenge you. There is no more exciting life. There is no better life than a life that is lived in pursuit of giving your best to God. Sin is crouching at your door. It wants to destroy you. If it can't destroy you, it wants to distract you. And today, and every day, you have the choice. Will it rule? Or will God within you rule? And that's the choice that you, and only you, can make. God, I pray that we would be people who live our lives to honor and glorify you. I pray, God, we would offer you our best. I pray for people who are hurting, especially for parents who have the pain of a a child that they love so dearly, are so frustrated by. And I pray, God, that you wouldn't allow the enemy to gain a foothold in people's lives where they question every move they've made as a parent, where the enemy is able to come along and steal their joy. But Lord, in the quietness of this moment right now, I just... I pray for those kids who were raised in homes that pointed them to Jesus and who right now, God, are making choices that just indicate that their hearts are far from you. And God, I pray that you'd get a hold of their lives. I pray you'd get a hold of them. And I pray that in the angst and the anguish and the parents' hearts and in their lives, you would just remind them they can't make choices for someone else. I pray that all of us would resist the enemy. We would be wise in our conduct. And we would give you our best. But that would be the focus each and every day. That we would impact this world for your glory, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.